everyone, welcome back to the Leadership Locker. Man, it has been a whirlwind going between San Diego, Austin, Virginia Beach, and now uh, getting into the second half of November and just gonna kick back a little bit. And by kick back, I mean just completely not travel and work from home. So look, I have just been blessed with numerous opportunities that have presented themselves And a lot of that has come from some of the satisfaction our current clients have put out there into the world and and just definitely giving the word of mouth referrals. And I was brought on for a project to work with Echelon Front. If you don't know who Echelon Front is, it was a management consulting firm founded by Leif Babin and Jocko Willink. And if you don't know who they are, you will know. But all you have to do is literally just Google the word Jocko, J-O-C-K-O, and you will find out. So I went to go do some filming with Jocko in San Diego and we wrapped up because he's a complete professional. We wrapped up way faster than I thought. He was extremely, extremely open to feedback and suggestions. And there was obviously many times I did not have to do anything at all. I could literally just press record after I asked him a question and we'd be going. So stand by for some awesome LinkedIn content from him. Now here's the thing. I show up, we sit down. We go, we crush, we finish. And then I said, hey, we are way ahead of schedule. Would you like to be on the leadership locker? And I told him what it's about. And he's like, let's do it. So uh, lucky for me, I had an extra cameraman there, Eric Magana. Check him out at uh, pbfilms.com. Awesome, awesome guy. And he was there to capture B-roll and just kind of monitor the camera as Jocko and I went. So let's talk about Jocko. He's written five New York Times bestsellers. He's a children's author. He has a massive, massive podcast, which is followed religiously, as is his YouTube channel. He is a co-founder of Echelon Front. He's a founder of Origin Clothing. He has Jocko Fuel. He has protein. I mean, you name it. He has his hands in everything. So having the opportunity to sit down with him after doing our quote unquote deliverables was a complete pleasure. And I just got to just be exactly who I am. You know, I went off of director mode and into podcast mode and I just wanted to ask him questions I was curious to hear his answers and opinions on. And that's exactly what we got. So in this episode, this one's definitely tailored towards veterans because he obviously sticks out and is probably up there as one of the most recognized veterans out there who has had profound success. And it looks like that success will continue for a very, very long time. So I wanted to ask his opinion for all of us who are out there or transitioning and have determined that we want a small business or to run a business. He's going to walk us through how to mitigate that, how to decide, how to price, uh, how to approach everything, how to check your six, how to check your flanks and many of the decisions and and the kind of nomenclature of of how he arrived at some of these decision points. So I really, really hope whether you're a small business owner or a veteran entrepreneur or a transitioning service member that you get something from this. And look, it's time to get into it. Here we go. Jocko, I'm doing my podcast here at your place. We just crushed some filming. We ran through it. And I wanted to invite you to be on the Leadership Locker, which is for transitioning service members and veterans like myself who want or have their own business. You are obviously largely successful. And I know we talked about it while we were filming earlier, but uh, I'm assuming the audience already knows who you are. But let's talk about the very first thing, which is how do I even 
conceptualize if this idea in my head should actually be something that I move forward with in terms of starting a business or maybe a side hustle if I'm already kind of integrated into the traditional workforce. Yeah, so since we're talking to veterans, it's pretty easy to make this analogy when we're on the battlefield. We look at the enemy positions and we look for weakness in that. We look for weakness in their line. And if we find weakness in their line or we sense weakness in their line, we apply resources, we attack that weakness. Once we attack the weakness, we exploit the weaknesses, which is what we say in the military, we exploit that weakness. If we find that we can actually penetrate through that weakness, then we'll put more resources there. If we find that we can go deeper, we put more resources there until we flood through the enemy gates. So this is the same thing that you do, in my opinion, to assess a business opportunity from the perspective that you're talking about, which is there's a bunch of ideas in your head. There's a bunch of opportunities that you see. Put a little resources against them. See if this is an actual opportunity. See if there's a true market to what you think is a market. Because we're not always right. Just like we test the enemy defenses, we could be wrong. And we don't, continually, we don't continue to attack an enemy strong point. We back off and we look for another opportunity somewhere else. So just apply some some of your resources, apply resources, figure out, run a feedback loop, yep. see what kind of feedback you get. If you get positive feedback, great. And put a little more resources into that. Run that feedback loop again. If you get positive feedback, great. Do it again and do it again and do it again. And if at any time you receive negative feedback, you assess, all right, well, do I need to shift direction a little bit? Do I need to move to another area? So that's what we do in the military. And I think that's a good procedure for civilian life as well. And that's basically, that's basically what I've done. So with the weaknesses that you saw maybe out in the marketplace, you decided, I believe it was books first, right? In terms of writing. And, and maybe that was intended to be impactful, but ultimately led to be a funnel. Or was it echelon front first and then the books? It was definitely echelon front first. And before it was echelon front, it was me talking to people about leadership, which again, I didn't, I didn't do a market analysis and figured out that there was a weakness in the civilian market for leadership training. I didn't, I didn't do that. Somebody asked me to train their corporate executives about leadership. And I said, okay, I put some resources against it. All of a sudden they said, hey, we need more of this. Okay, I'll do it some more. Other companies took note. Oh, we could use some of that too. Hey, let's put some more resources. Hey, Leif Babin, you want to come and do this too? Yes, I'm in. Okay, so let's put some more resources. Can we continue to work? Yes, all of a sudden my schedule filled, Leif's schedule filled. Who else can we bring on board? What else can we do? Now, eventually in there, we got asked so much. The demand signal was high for, hey, do you have this stuff written down? Can you give us a handout? So we wrote the, the information down. That turned into the first book, Extreme Ownership. That went to market. We didn't know what was going to happen. Yep. Did we know that? You know, no one can predict what's going to happen with a book. No one predict, can predict. Doesn't matter. There's no predictions of what's going to happen with the book. The publisher doesn't know. The only people that can judge the success of a book is the public. Mm -hmm. So no one knows, but we made the book, and the book ended up doing well. And then, you know, I, I, I was on Tim Ferriss' podcast. And Tim told me you should start a podcast. And I was like, that sounds like a good idea. I could, I could get behind that. And then a few weeks later, I was on Joe Rogan's podcast. And he said, you should start a podcast. And I said, okay, these are two of the biggest podcasters in the world and great guys. And So what was that like when these people invite you? 
were you like, I've made it, uh, like here we are, I'm now at, and not made it like for life, but I mean, I have now crossed a different threshold than what I thought any of these were going to be. I've gone from consulting to now being an author to now being told by some of the best podcasters in the world, hey dude, you need to start a podcast. What was your mindset like? Was it just gratitude or let's go or wow? Well, I would say it wasn't like, oh, I've made it. And the the interesting thing, when I was on Tim's podcast, I'd never done an interview before. So, and I had no social, I mean, Tim was the one that told me, you better get, you need to get on Twitter. And I was like, well, what is, isn't that, is that some kind of Facebook thing? And I wasn't on Facebook. I wasn't on, wasn't on anything. And so he told me, hey, you should get on this. It's a way to communicate with people. It's a way to give access to people. It's a way to, to meet people virtually. So I didn't really have a good enough understanding of the terrain to realize where I was. Um, now, I, believe me, I had listened to Tim Ferriss's podcast, absolutely. And I listened to Rogan's podcast, absolutely. But listen, at that time, podcasts weren't as big as they are now. Yeah. Uh, they weren't even close. And so even, so going on all those podcasts, they were the biggest podcast at the time, for sure. And I was super lucky and, and stoked to be on their podcast. But because I was a fan of their podcast and because, you know, they, I knew that they put out great podcasts. And then when they told me to start a podcast, you know, again, it's a, it's a no brainer when two great podcasters like that tell you to start a podcast. That's a, that, that, that means something. But at the time, the terrain in podcasting, there wasn't that many podcasts out there. So for me, it was like, yeah, I'll definitely start a podcast. And so I did. It's kind of like when people ask me what my five-year plan is or what my 10-year plan is. Five years ago, what is it? Five years ago right now, I didn't even have a podcast. Mm-hmm. Five years ago right now, I didn't have a book. That's Actually, right. my book had been yeah, out for, just come for out, a right? week or yeah. whatever. Yep. So how could I have known where I would be? How could I have known as I assessed the enemy defenses? How could I have known which areas were weak and which areas I could move into? I couldn't have known it. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really huge on like, oh, I've got a five-year plan on how this stuff is all going to work out because I could have gone on Tim Ferriss and, you know, maybe said dumb things or, you know, just not carried on a good conversation. And maybe that would have been a bad situation and it wouldn't have gone so well. And maybe I wouldn't have started a podcast and maybe right now I would be doing focused on some other area. So I wasn't, definitely wasn't thinking I made it. I was super stoked to talk to those guys and they're both great guys. And people ask me all the time, what do they really like? I'll tell you what they're really like. They're both really like they are on their podcast. Yeah. They're great guys. Always, always, you know, have had my back and supported me. So really lucky to have that opportunity. So what I got out of that is, is something that I think comes out a lot in the veteran community and entrepreneurial space, which is the inclination to just have, not the inclination, it is good guidance, but to be ultra clear on exactly what you want. But as things scale, it was easy to realize that you are not scalable. You can't go to every company that wants you to talk. You can't go to every conference and you can't give every keynote. So I'm going to publish something. So when it comes to clarity on the mission, you had no choice but to go in different directions. What do you say to entrepreneurs or veteran entrepreneurs that, you know, are, are trying to be ultra clear in, in, the, in terms of they might be missing them something if they're not exploring? You got the guidance that you should get on Twitter. You got the guidance that you should be on podcasting. I try and do the same for them and be like, you need a content strategy. You need to be out there. Your value is only going to be realized if you're visible. 
What would you say to people who try and stay ultra clear, but are maybe ignoring other resources or mediums out there to reach and build a community the way you did? This is going back to the same conversation. If you just look at this, at the enemy defenses, and you just look at one spot where you're going to concentrate on, that might not be the spot. You might have gotten fooled. You, you might have misinterpreted how they have their defenses set up. And if that's what you keep attacking, you're not going to win. So uh, I would say that's a bad idea. <laughs> you know, you got you to keep your own. You can't get target fixated. Yeah. And you've got to keep an open mind. You've got to have the humility to say, you know what? That plan didn't really work too well. Mm-hmm. That, that wasn't a good idea. Yes. It's, it's, it's actually a powerful thing to, to look at your attempts, look at your plan and say, oh, yeah, that was a bad plan. That didn't work the way I thought it was going to work. I think that's the thing, though. I think veterans especially say, well, now I'm going to look like a complete failure. How do they get over kind of what maybe they perceive the people on the outside perceive of us, which is we are stellar, we're going to hit it, we are rigid, we are structured, we succeed, and we win, and all of a sudden now I'm catching L's on my business. How can we adjust the mindset to be like, those are all blessings in disguise because you are going to fail early and often in entrepreneurship? Yes, we want to fail early and we want to fail often, but more importantly, we want to fail small. Hmm. So how do we fail small? It's by not over committing to things that we don't fully understand. So, you know, if I told you, hey, Rich, you know, watch bands are going to be really popular. And you say, really? And I say, yeah, watch bands are going to be extremely popular. You should go into the watch band business. And you say, got it. And you, you think, hey, I've got a content strategy around watch bands. And so you mortgage your house and you not only you mortgage your house, but you put all your media out there, you invest in advertising, and you totally commit to this idea. Well, guess what? There's a lot of companies that make watch bands, and while they are a good thing to have, people have a lot of options. And in fact, most watches that you buy come with their own watch band. And people don't want necessarily to buy a new one. So maybe this idea that I had that I convinced you of wasn't that great of an idea. And so now you look up and you've invested everything, including your own personal human capital, your own reputation to say, hey, you know, this is it. I'm, I'm the watch band guy. And now all of a sudden, the watch band guy didn't work out. So a better way to, to mitigate that risk would be to say, hey, I think watch bands are the deal. You should, you should start selling watch bands. And you go, okay, that sounds like I'm, I don't know too much about them, but you know what? Let's, make, let's take a crack at it. And so you make 500 watch bands and you post about it one time, and you say, hey, I made these watch bands, they're pretty cool, and you sell three of them. One to your mom, one to your dad, and one to your little sister. You realize maybe this wasn't that big, of, that wasn't, wasn't that great of a call. <laughs> yeah. well, guess what? You can actually come out and say, hey, oh yeah, the watch band company, turns out there wasn't what I was, thought it was gonna be. We shut that down. We're selling dog leashes. Who wants a dog <laughs> leash? Whatever the case may be. Yep. So mitigate the risk by not over committing, and this is something that, I did all the time as a leader. You know, I didn't, I didn't say, hey, everyone, this is the plan. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to attack this target. Because as you start looking at the terrain and you start looking at the enemy defenses and you start looking at the friendly force locations, your idea might not have been the best idea. So if you overcommitted to it, now you end up having to say, like, sorry, I was wrong. And now the next time you say something is the right way to do it, people aren't really listening. But if you approach with a measured 
statement. Like, hey, here's the target we're supposed to hit. I'm thinking it might be good to come in from over here. What do you guys think? And now you haven't overcommitted. If you change your mind, it's not that big of a deal. And people are happy that you weren't barking orders or, or staking a claim that you didn't really have any knowledge about. You get out of the military, but some of these people, veterans, they did eight years. They don't have passive income, so to speak, from retirement. Maybe they don't have any disability, anything like that. But they also look at the world in the landscape of, I'm really ready to be my own boss. I don't want to go into the traditional workforce. My advice is you definitely need to if you want to keep the lifestyle you have and if you're in San Diego or any place like that. And I know the theme here is obviously small steps, but what should they do in terms of a traditional job that's going to allow them to fund their idea, so to speak? Like, what should they seek out? How important should it be to them? What advice do you have along those lines? My advice would be get a job. Get a job, not just for the income part, but to learn. And if you can get a job that's somehow related to the industry that you think you want to go into, go in there and learn that industry. There's just like real world operations, right? You get a lot of experience and you learn so much by actually doing. So absolutely go out, get a job. What you would, what you need to be careful of is you get that job and you become addicted to that income, right? And you start living that lifestyle of this, you you know, you get out of the military and all of a sudden you get a job where your income's gone up and you start spending like your income went up. Don't, don't start spending like your income went up. Yeah. Start, stay where you were. Start saving money and start investing that money back into whatever it is you're going to do in the future. How important do you think it is for veterans, transitioning service members to make sure their network extends out to civilians? I really believe that some of the mistakes that we make is sometimes we stay too closely tied together. You clearly have connections all over uh, that are civilians or successful in their own regard on the outside. And, And sometimes I believe that what can happen is it becomes an echo chamber if we just stick together. You're gonna lose your tribe and it sucks. And then you're gonna try to keep some of that tribe What have you seen from when you started to interact with highly successful people on the outside, and what did that do for you in terms of kind of thrusting you into entrepreneurship in a way that you were going to succeed? You know, I guess I'm a little weary of the word, like, networking. It kind of freaks me out. I know. (laughs) Because when I hear the word networking, to me, it implies, what am I going to get from you? (laughs) And and I don't like that attitude. You're about relationships. So... My idea of working with other people is how how can I help you win? How can I help you move forward? And if I get something back, that's great. If I don't, that's even better, right? That's that's just superb. So I'm a little weary of the word networking. And I think if you go out into the world thinking, hey, if I meet this person, what can I get from them? That's the wrong attitude to have. You know, even to the point of saying, like, what can I learn from them is is borderline, right? Because even when you say, what can I learn from this person? It should be, hey, how can I mutually support what they're doing? How can I give something to them? And you're going to get that. You're going to get knowledge from them, and that's great. But don't make that your goal. Don't make it your goal in life to see see who you can shake hands with and see who you can put their number in your phone so that you can capitalize on it. You should be doing that. 
so that you can try and help someone else out. And, and I think that's the why the word networking yeah. makes me a little bit nervous because when I think of the word networking, I think of people trying to meet other people for their own gain. Whereas when we meet people, we should be thinking, oh, is there anything I can do for you? And I think here's the crazy thing. And this is, I found this to be 100% true. If I meet you and I'm seeking to get something from you, I will get way less in the long run than I will if I meet you and I try and give you something and I try and help you. In the long run, I will benefit more by trying to help you. So, so there's a little dichotomy there, right? The more I help you, the more help I'm going to get. The more I roll out and try and get from you, the less I'm going to receive in the long run. Perfect. So in a business sense, then, this is the question everyone always wants to know. You talked about how you scaled. The demand signal was there. So you now want to help people. You know you can help people. The market is telling you you can help people. How do you start going about pricing structures? How do you test out without undervaluing yourself? What do you put out there that's strong but not overblown uh, that maybe ruins your credibility a little bit because you're asking something preposterous and you've been in business for three months? How do you go about trying to help people, your heart's in it, you want it, you're passionate about it, and now it's time to really price it out so that you could scale because the whole goal of the business is to scale. Like You do want to profit at some point while you're helping people. Well, what, what kind of product are we talking about? Product or service. Uh, I mean, consult, so keynotes for you. Mm-hmm. You know, like I want you to come talk to my people and give them a, a good lesson in extreme ownership for the better part of a day. And you love to do that. You love to do it. You're born to do it. Everything's great now. And uh, Tim Ferriss used to say, free or full price. And whatever the highest price he got became his standard price. But for a lot of people, whether it's a product, brick and mortar service, they have a, let's say, uh, a food truck. Mm-hmm. Or on the service side, maybe you have a video, videography business. How do you start off for all these people out there listening when they are ready to test their product, but they are weary of some of the feedback they might get on the price point? How do they even conceptualize that? Yeah, well... This is veterans, right? Yeah. This is American veterans? Yeah. Or I, this, this is really all small business owners, but mm-hmm. I really try and tailor it to veterans. Well, well, guess what? We live in America. And guess what we have in America? The free market. <laughs> and you don't even have to worry about pricing because the market will set the price for you. And, and you, do you have to start somewhere? Yes, you do. And you can immediately tell by the demand signal whether that price is too high or too low. That's the free market. That's the way, that's the, way the world works. Well, that's the way America works. So you, you, can, you can do an estimate. You can look at maybe what someone with some similar product is selling it for. You can see whether you're may, maybe your product is a little bit better, a little bit worse. And you can say, okay, well, I think my product is a little bit better. I can raise the price a little bit. Put it out there. What's the free market tell you? Mm-hmm. The free market, if people buy it, cool. You can raise your prices. Yep. If, you're, if no one buys it, Cool. You can lower your prices. So to me, this is just a free market thing. And you, you set your prices based on, on the demand signal and supply and demand. And last couple of questions are people sometimes eagerly try to get into partnerships and people want that talent that they recognize, someone they know, maybe someone who mitigates the risk a little bit for them. They know they have skin in the game at this point. What is your, and obviously, I mean, you've, you've had you've co-authored, you have partners in some of your businesses. How would you talk to people about approaching that and, and making sure they consider the factors? And, and the reason I'm asking is, I talked to a lawyer once and they're like, remember this, 
you can give something, but it's way harder to take it back. You know, as far as uh, here's equity or here's a percentage or, or whatever it may be. What is your word of advice on seeking out partners and how to kind of evaluate whether that's what you need? I mean, every different business scenario that you're going to get in is going to be different. Mm -hmm. But for me, I find people that I like to work with, and that's who I work with. If I don't like to work with someone, I'm not going to work with them. Mm -hmm. If I like to work with them, we're good. You know, um, that's the way it's going to be. And and I'm good. And if, if I'm working with you, and you're my business partner, and you're my friend, and you need all the profit that we're making, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. Why is that? Because we're here to win, and if for some reason you need all the money, I'm going to give it to you. I also know that if I needed all the money, you'd give it to me. That's why we're working together. So this is, a, this is, this is the worst advice that someone could give. Don't follow my advice on this situation because it's very rare that you're going to have a situation where you're going to have a relationship like that with your working partners. So I would listen to someone else's advice on this, not mine, because I have heavy, trusted business partners where if they needed you know, to take, take all the profits for the next three years because their family was in some kind of trouble, they'd get them. And so that's the way it is. I had one of my, uh, is actually Seth Stone. We were, he's one of the, he was the Delta platoon commander when we were in tasking at Bruiser. And one time, you know, we were like out somewhere and he was getting ready to go and he was going to need some money. And he's like, Hey, you got 20 bucks. And I like handed him my wallet and I said, just take whatever you want. <laughs> and there's, you know, like whatever, three or $400 in there. I said, Hey, take whatever you need. And he's like, what do you mean? I go, just take whatever you need. He's like, okay. <laughs> and he took 20 bucks, but I literally don't care, you know, like how much, if he needs money, he's my friend and I'm going to give it to him. Yeah. So again, this is bad quote business advice, but I have a bunch of different businesses. I have had zero business disputes and no one's taken all my money yet. <laughs> <laughs> you just said it. You have multiple businesses. When does it stop for you? Like, is there any point that you are not kind of thirsty or hungry for something else? And I don't mean something to fall out of thin air, but things that are just tucked away in your subconscious that you're like, when the time is right, I'm launching on that. Are you always in that kind of mode? Or are these things presenting themselves as everything else that's happening is presenting opportunities? So my literary agent is a woman who is really, really smart, and she went to Yale or Harvard, and she got a degree in history and in English literature. And one day I was talking to her, and I said, can I ask you a question? She says, what? And I said, why is it that me, a high school graduate who joined the Navy and spent my entire life, why am I writing books? I said, you're an Ivy League educated, really smart person. Why aren't you writing books? And she said, when I look at an empty page, I don't know what to write. And I said, that's very different from me because I have a thousand books that I want to write right now. I could write the titles for the books down for you. 
I, I just have to get them out of my system. So for me, it's like, which one of these books do I need to get out? Which one has simmered to the top and boiled to the top and is boiling over where I just have to sit down and write it? So to me, the business opportunities are the same thing. I've got thousands of things that I want to do. And it's like, which one surfaces and where I go, okay, you know what? I'm going to put some resources against that. And I'm going to see if it's if the market is there for it and if it makes sense to do and if it's something that people need and if there's a demand signal, if all those things line up, cool. I'll put more resources behind it. But I don't know if there's a bottom or I don't know if there's a a finite number of these things uh, and I don't know if that's good or bad. (laughs) It seems seems like it's good. What I want to talk about last was blind spots. It's really hard to anticipate blind spots. From your community, from my community, from the veteran community, we train, 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 and we understand. We plan for contingencies. We have secondary, tertiary plans. In entrepreneurship, you don't necessarily have that. And I know we talked about going small in the beginning, but what are some blind spots that you maybe have experienced that you could share to be like, watch out for that? Or you don't need the website yet, or you better have an accountant, or you better protect your IP. Is there any blind spots that come to mind uh, from you as you've kind of risen uh, and all these different verticals uh, that you would kind of put out there. It's not exactly where I thought you were going with that question because I'm trying to think of blind spots and I don't think I've been caught really completely off guard on anything. And, and maybe that's due to the fact that I'm constantly checking my flank, right? I'm constantly, I'm not, I, there's not a day that I wake up and say, well, I've got everything dialed in today. I don't have to worry about anything. I don't think that for a minute. I'm constantly thinking, all right, what, what's happening? What, what's happening? Where am, I, where am I missing something? Where's my shortfall? What do I need to do different? Where do I have a blind spot? So I'm constantly checking my flanks to make sure that there's no space there. But what I, where I thought you were going with this question is, look, we're going to get hit with some things we don't expect. Mm-hmm. So then what do we do? And, and to me, there is a protocol for when you get hit with what you don't expect to get hit with, which is take a step back, detach, don't get emotional, do an assessment of what you think is the best course of action to take out of here, and then mitigate the risk of that action by taking small steps, which is what I've been talking about all day, by taking some small action, running a feedback loop and see if that was the right decision or if we were heading in the right direction. If we are, cool, take another step in that direction. Take another, if we get bad feedback, move in a different direction. So you are gonna, you're not gonna be able to anticipate anything, everything, nobody can do that. But number one, check your flanks. Check your flanks. Check your six. You have to do that. You can't get target fixated. And and the the thing that causes these blind spots, in, as far as I know, it's not a lack of knowledge. It's a it's a lack of humility. Mm-hmm. Because if you're looking around, there's so much information out there. I mean, there's so there's so much information that if you can't figure out what you need to watch out for, it's not because the information's not there. It's that you're not open to it. So keep your ego in check. And then if you do get hit, cool. Have the right response. Mm-hmm. Don't get emotional. Stay detached. Make small steps to fix the problem. Very last question. Patience. What would you say in terms of expectation management where you have a book that takes off and you're like, I'm ready. Like, let's go. This next book better do the same. And all these other things that you got going on, Jocko Fuel Origin. Tell me about how you practice patience and the expectation of having that patience to succeed. 
I feel like a lot of people, including myself, get in a rush. Like you taste a little bit and then you're like ready to go. Uh, and I think we talked about this when I was interviewing you prior. How do you go without missing some of the things that are going to be critical to your success? Well, so you asked me about patience. And I would say I'm, I've kind of got a, a dichotomy with patience mm-hmm. because, or maybe it's not even a dichotomy. I, I'm, not, I'm not waiting for success to show up on something that I did three weeks ago because I'm not looking at it anymore. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sitting there going, wait a second, why isn't this taking off? Usually someone will notify me and say, hey, that product that you just released, we're done X amount of sales. This is insane. And I go, oh, that's cool. I forgot that we launched that thing. <laughs> that's, kind of, that's kind of the mode that I'm in. So I'm not sitting there waiting for the results to show up. I'm moving on to the next thing. So I don't really have to exercise a lot of patience because I'm not sitting there trying to watch the grass grow. When I plant the seeds, set the sprinkler, and I'm moving on, and if I come back and there's grass, awesome. If there's not, well, then maybe I'll do a, a post-mortem to figure out why the grass didn't grow. But I'm most likely already seven yards away and I've got grass growing in other pastures, so I'm good. So you do have to be patient, but I think maybe the best way to exercise patience is to start executing something else, which is, I mean, every book that I've written, when that book is coming out, I've already got another book that's already written that's in the process of being released. So, you know, um, what's come out this year? Warrior Kid 4 is about to come out. Well, Warrior 4 was was in the pipeline when leadership strategy and tactics come out. Warrior Kid 4 comes out in a few weeks, and in another year, I have a novel that's coming out, an adult novel. So that's the next one in the pipeline. I just had about face come out with the four. So all these things are happening, and I'm not looking back at them. Just had the re-release of Dismingle's Freedom Field Manual. That just, I forgot, I actually forgot right now. This just came, this, this re-release just came out. Uh, I think it was the 19th, October 19th. I, I literally, while we're sitting here, if I didn't look at it, I would have forgotten that that re-release came out. So I'm, I'm probably just not the best example because for me, patience, it doesn't, it's not even a thing because I'm moving. He's saying though, it's, it's less about patience and it's more of a non-existent fear of failure. I, I think... That is a mentality and an attitude that uh, obviously a lot of us could learn from and just, you know, lick our wounds, debrief ourselves, get feedback, and then move the fuck on. <laughs> yeah, and also, prior to that, we, mitigate your risk and yeah. make sure that you're not over-investing yeah. on something that you're not sure about. It was 1990-something, and I was, I was in the SEAL teams, and I was working with a group of guys and one of the other guys was really into jujitsu. So we were really into jujitsu. This is like 19, maybe 1997. And we were out here stationed in San Diego and we were on a trip to the East Coast. So we're in Virginia, we're in Virginia Beach. And then there happens to be a UFC that weekend. Hmm. And like Dan Severn days. This was the, the actual UFC that it was, was Mark Coleman versus Maurice Smith. That's the fight that was happening. So we could we could deconstruct and find the dates. It was either, sure. ni- maybe it was 97, 98. Yeah. Maybe it was 96, but it was in those years, probably 97. So myself and this other guy, we get out to the East Coast and we know that we're staying for the weekend and we know that the fight is happening on Saturday. So we're like, hey, we got to watch the fight. We got to figure out where it's playing. We got to get there early. We, you know, we, we might not be able, because we were staying in the barracks. So there's no like pay-per-view. Yeah. So we had to go somewhere where they had the fight. 
And so we're calling around to different bars and no, no, none of the bars are sports bars. No one was playing the fight. So we're like, oh my God, it's gonna be so crowded wherever they actually have it. So finally, it's playing. And it's playing at the enlisted man's club on Naval Station Norfolk. So we say, okay, awesome. This is where we're gonna go. We better get there early. You know, we wanna get good seats. So we get there, you know, the fight started at whatever, seven o'clock. So we get there at 4.30 on Saturday. We show up and luckily when we get there, there's no one there. So we get the prime seats right in front of the big screen TV. And we, you know, kind of box off a little area. We start ordering food because we know it's gonna get crazy. No one came. <laughs> it was literally me and him. Alone in the enlisted man's club. There might have been a couple people over, you know, shooting pool. But that's always been a, a warning to me. That's a, that's a warning that you think you know. You know, when you think you think a product is going to be so popular, you think that you think you understand people and you don't. And I was so far, if I could have, if I would have had to bet that, you know, that fight that we were going to, that there was going to be, a thousand tickets sold to get in to watch that event and that night, I would have said, oh, I'll, 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 I'll front the whole thing. Let me just keep the profits. I'll rent the whole building for, for $10,000 because we're going to make a killing and I would have lost everything. So that's a warning to me. I always have that in the back of my mind that you don't understand everything and your theories can be wrong and you're not as smart as you think you are. So... I always think about that when it comes to products or releasing things. Yeah. That's why I always say mitigate those risks by doing things a little bit smaller at first. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on. There's a lot of places people could follow you. There's a lot of different things you have going on. Is there anything in particular you'd like people to pay attention to? Is it the Unraveling podcast? Do you want people to know about Jocko Fuel on Amazon? Anything you want uh, the people out there to consume or check out? No, nah, man, whatever, you know, if people feel want to check stuff out, it's pretty easy to figure out. Uh, I just hope people get something out of this and, and can learn a little bit, pass on some of the lessons I learned, which some of them have been pretty rough. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for being on. All right, everyone, that is a wrap. You know the drill already. I say it all the time, and I hope that you could give me 30 seconds. Please rate and review this. If you got anything, please rate and review this. I want to make sure that the people who this applies to, I, I want it to fall into their social media feeds, into their ears on their way to work. I want them to be able to just get and siphon this information to transform their thoughts and ideas into execution and success. So thank you. We'll be back. Take care.